All statements and opinions expressed by guests of the Adult in the Room podcast are strictly their own and do not necessarily reflect the beliefs or opinions of the host, producers, or advertisers. All interviews are presented in their most complete possible form in the interests of free speech. No statements should be interpreted as financial, legal, or medical advice. Listener and viewer discretion are strongly advised. It's the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. That's me. We've got a fun edition of the Adult in the Room podcast today with Victoria Taft. Uh, Chef Andrew Gruel is smart. He's not that that's anything unusual for this program, obviously. He's outspoken, though. You know this guy. He's talented. And I call him America's chef. And I don't know if anyone else has that label, but I'm transferring it over to Andrew Gruel. So there. When COVID hit, Chef Gruel made some friends and he made some enemies uh, for having the temerity to read studies and find out what it was that COVID was all about and how he should comport himself and his business in this, uh, this kind of atmosphere. Gavin Newsom and his network of so-called experts shut things down, and he believed it made no sense. Uh, No, no, Gavin Newsom probably didn't think it made any sense either. He is, of course, the owner of a business, but he went along with it anyway, and everyone else had to salute smartly and march up the hill. Well, now the experts are back telling us that laboratory food's going to be just fantastic, that meat they're cooking up in some sort of lab. It's going to be the next thing. You're going to love it, everybody. And then they tell us they don't like wood pizza ovens. They don't like gas stoves. Uh, they don't like wood fireplaces or uh, because science, because because science. But Chef Gruel is what I call a conservative in that he's a conservationist. He likes to conserve things. He's a steward of and a helper to the environment, which is an, which is a wonderful thing, except he's not crazy, which I think is a really a good selling point on that. He's more than just a guy you may have seen on the Food Network or the Nightly News. He's there on all of those things and has been off and on for years and years and years. He really is something. He was the founder of Slapfish and now helms his new concept, American Gravy. And so we're going to talk to him about that as well. Chef Andrew Gruel, America's Chef. Welcome to the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. America's Chef, what do you think? Well, thank you for that very, very kind intro. I appreciate it. And it's great to be back. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. Well, um, I, I think you kind of are. You've put yourself out there. You're not a guy who's hidden away from controversy. You've not been afraid to stand up for what you believe. Standing up for what's right is what's wrong with America. P- there are too few people doing it. And so it's nice and refreshing when you see someone doing that. And you have just been a guy. I think you've been on a mission your whole life. I mean, you are like a heat-seeking missile. You set a target and you go for it. And that's been the most inspirational thing I've I've read and heard about you. I've listened to other interviews you've done. I love your origin story. If you don't mind, could you tell us a little bit about how you ended up in that kitchen that you're inside today on this uh, day that we're being, you know, we're chatting? Well, I, you know, I actually uh, grew up in a family where cooking wasn't necessarily the centerpiece. We uh, love food, but my parents worked and they worked hard, long hours. So I was typically relegated to the microwave or takeout. And, uh, you know, call it maybe a, you know, a survival skill. I always loved cooking. I used to watch those old dump and stir PBS cooking shows uh, when, you know, when I was sick from school or when I would fake being sick. And 
always wanted to learn how to cook, but never thought it would become a career. It, throughout high school, my uh, my jobs in high school were working in restaurants and hotels and understanding the kitchen. I call it the kind of pirate, uh, the pirate ship of the industry. And I went to a small liberal arts college up in Maine, Bates College, and I was studying philosophy and piano performance. But while I was going to college, I was lobstering and working in restaurants up there. And uh, after a couple of years of doing that, I realized I was spending more time in the kitchen than I was in class and that that was really my calling. And I should at least lean into it a little bit and see what it was all about. So I did. I got in the industry, I traveled around, worked under various chefs, ultimately went back to school, got my culinary arts degree, and then subsequently my uh, business degree in food marketing and management, food service management. And now here I am. You know, did anyone tell you when you first started out that a young, good-looking guy like you uh, will end up having to work 12-hour days and nights and weekends? I think that was actually probably the allure for me. I really liked the competitive nature of the industry. I liked the long hours. I liked the endurance that it required. I was a, you know, kind of a uh, an endurance athlete growing up, distance running, swimming, you name it. So for me, that was kind of the fun piece. It was like training. Yeah, training. How do you take care of yourself now? You're so busy with work. I mean, how do you keep up physically and mentally? Four kids definitely helps. Uh, you know, keeps me on my feet. I always joke about the workout of being a father. You know, you're carrying the kids. You're you know you're picking up their toys. Those are like squats. But I I still get a lot of miles in. I mean, I run forty to fifty miles a week and try and get some weight training. And plus, I'm on my feet in the restaurant twelve to fourteen hours a day. And being a dad, so that in and of itself is is certainly workout. The last time I recall, you know, interacting with you on Twitter, you were talking about how you, well, this isn't, this was a while. So you'd been talking about how you, you sold Slapfish and now you're in a new concept. So tell us about American Gravy. What does that even mean? So American Gravy is kind of the parent company and we've got various concepts underneath that that we're launching. Our flagship right now is Calico Fish House. It is a uh, seafood chop house. So the best in meats and local seafood. Uh, local produce, really trying to highlight a lot of these great farmers that are doing things right. We're seed oil free. We cook in beef tallow, duck fat, butter, ghee, you name it. Um, uh, you know, very, very protein focused. So I think it's kind of everything that I've wanted to do, but all wrapped up into one restaurant. It's a full bar and restaurant with a, you know, a 90 seat patio on the water in Huntington Beach. So it's certainly, um, it's certainly, you know, a steak on the, on the coast here. Wow. That sounds wonderful. Uh, this is kind of an interesting thing to me. You have some specific concerns about the, like seed oils and that sort of thing and how, how people use them and misuse them. Fats and foods, uh, how one goes about you know frying up something uh, and what you use to do that and what's good and what's not. Tell us a little bit about that because I, I understand that you know, my daughter was just telling me this the other day. She goes, Mom, you know, the seed oils, they just do all kinds of things to those seeds in order to get this oil. And she says, it's not necessarily good for you. And I thought, oh my gosh. I never actually never thought about it. Didn't care. Yeah. I mean, we think of oil as just, you know, kind of a lubricant for cooking and a, a means by which you can transfer heat from, uh, you know, the pan to the product. But really, and there's such a proliferation of oils in the industry and they use so much oil in the food service industry. So it's a, it's a heavy expense. So there's a huge push on the commercial side to create these kind of cheap oils that can be used in mass quantities in the restaurant industry, whether it's deep frying or pan frying or just generally sauteing. And, uh, you know, one thing I, for me, it became apparent just in the taste difference, right? This kind of oxidized bitter oil after it's been sitting on a 500 or 600 degree flat top for a long period of time, 
or sitting in a deep fryer at 400 degrees breaking down. And I started experimenting with other oils. So it was almost the taste that drove me to want to understand the science behind what it does to our bodies. All of these oils. Well, all of these oils are high in omega-6 fatty acids, right? And it's that omega-6 fatty acid that causes a lot of inflammation. And the inflammation can then cause a lot of other subsequent diseases that we know as the Western diet. And it is, um, you know, it was pushed on us for years, for decades, through margarine and hydrogenated oils, trans fats, which now, of course, we find out are really bad for us. But it was the American government, the American Heart Association. It was all these massive groups and agencies that were pushing these products on us for so many years. And now... When you read labels, you'll see that seed oils are in absolutely everything, canola oil, grapeseed oil, sunflower seed oil, safflower seed oil, because they're very cheap to produce, they're subsidized, and they're not quality at all. So we've made it a mission ourselves to just cook with beef tallow, duck fat, bacon fat, um, rendered pork fat. We use extra virgin olive oil, avocado oil, a lot of these real fats that actually aren't just good for the palate and don't taste, they, they taste great or neutral, which is important. They have a smoking point, but they're also much better for you as a diner. So when you're going out to eat, we all know what that, you know, a chef's trick is to use a lot of fat in their cooking. We've actually tried to decrease the amount of fat that we use and instead master the culinary techniques that are necessary or fundamental for creating rich flavors, using a lot of herbs and acids and high quality vinegars. And in the marginal amount of fat that we use, we use that higher quality fat so that we can offer a much healthier experience. How did you discover that you wanted to cook you know what so i loved art growing up um i was you know i was in drawing and photography and fine arts acrylics you name it i was i was you know an artist i was a piano player um went to school for piano performance this that was my passion and i loved the idea of actually creating art on a plate but doing it hundreds of times over uh through service and seeing people eat your food the same way that an artist might appreciate somebody examining their artwork. I mean, it's the same thing in the food service industry, but it also takes a lot of skill, right? There's the, you know, the the variation of, of customer service in a certain type of environment and the culinary arts to it. That was really exciting for me. So I loved that. Plus, I love food, right? Like I was a glutton for, for really good food and I wanted to expand my palate and explore different types of foods. And then and then the origin story, right? So of where our food comes from. There's something really fascinating about understanding our supply chain from a heritage perspective, especially here in the United States, where we don't have, you know, a lengthy culture as a country outside of, you know, the, right, the Constitution, you know, 1700s. But before that, you've got countries where they have thousands of years of culinary history and cultural history. So to me, a lot of our history and the foundation of our culture in the United States is regional cuisine, right? It's the cuisines that tell the stories. So that was also interesting from an anthropological perspective. What was your least kind of food in the United States? What was my least? What was that? Least, least, least favorite food. I'm sorry. Oh boy. Um, well, I'm not a huge kind of like fast food fan. Um, uh, it, it, and by that I mean what's happened over the past 10 to 15 years where we've taken a lot of American classics and we've tried to kind of replicate them the McDonald's way. While I, I think it's really interesting <laughs> from a franchising or a business perspective, I don't necessarily love the outcome of the product and what it's become over the past, you know, couple decades. So, I mean, Cajun food is my least favorite, I think. And I, okay. I it's not like I spent a lot of time there uh, in the South or anything in, in Louisiana, but I just, I, I kept thinking, oh, this is going to be the best. It's going to be, I don't like crawfish. And it's sort of like, yeah. so I, I just kind of wonder if there's a particular cuisine you think is highly, how about highly overrated? How's that? Ah, uh, you know, um, 
Or is that death? I don't want to offend anybody, but uh, perhaps Midwest cuisine. Really? Okay. What is that? Well, Skyline Uh Chili. I, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not. I don't know if I'm a huge fan. (laughs) The I don't even know what Skyline Chili is. What the heck is that? It's chili smothered over spaghetti. Really? That's weird. This that's that's interesting. Well, I my my son-in-law puts um, uh, hot sauce on his spaghetti. So I mean, what can I say? I I you know. To each his own, I suppose. Yep. Now, you um, you decided that you're an artistic guy. Are, do you still play piano, by the way? Just, you know, I we have a piano at the house and I play with the kids a bunch. And every now and then, if good. I have the opportunity to sit down and do a little improv, I will, but not too much. So, so you're in the arts and then you decide that you're going to, what, hitchhike across the country to, to learn how to cook? Is Basically. that what happened? Basically, tell, tell us yeah. about that. Yeah, when I left college, I was going to school up in Maine, and I had gotten a job with the Grand Teton Lodge Company, which is in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, or right outside of Jackson Hole, Wyoming. So I thought, you know, what a better opportunity than to travel and traverse the United States. I had like six weeks before my job started, so I just started hitchhiking from Maine. You know, and that, and don't get me wrong, you know, I peppered in some Greyhound bus trips and a couple train trips here and there, but uh, the the you know primary bulk of it was just getting picked up and riding with truckers and other people who are traveling across the country. Were you ever afraid? Nah, I mean, I don't know. I should have been in retrospect, but I had this kind of no fear attitude at the time, which, you know, was both a blessing and a curse. I don't think you've lost the no fear attitude, have you? Well, I physically I have, you know, I, I, have, I know that I have physical limitations, but um, they're still, the remnants are still there. Definitely. I mean, you are unafraid to start your own companies. That's that's really, uh, I think, admirable. Because some people just, they're afraid because of the barricades in the way or the perceived ones, the barricades in their brain. They just just don't even try. What what caused you to be able to do that? I mean, so you go you go and you serve under this chef, right? You've got a job. And and uh, so what happened there? Let's go back there and then I'll get into all that other stuff. It's at the Grand Teton Lodge. So what happened with your culinary abilities there? You just mentorship, right? You know, kind of learning as much as I could from various chefs and then kind of trying to level up to the next chef and learn a little bit more and find out what's right. You know, real research, right? Because there's a joke in the culinary industry. There's the right way, there's the wrong way, and then there's the chef's way. So, you know, working for as many chefs as you can while also not job skipping is an opportunity to kind of develop your own style and technique and your own foundation of, of food. Uh, and that was really my goal. So I traveled around and worked under various chefs and then ultimately took the traditional route from culinary school. But I had already worked in the industry for a few years. And from there, it was about then learning the business piece of it. And what drove me to want to open my own business is, you know, the way in which team members and employees were treated in the industry. It was kind of a you know, it, it really was backwards, I believe. We, we've seen some of that conversation percolate lately, more so on the, you know, I think on the left left side of things. But it is true that a lot of workers weren't being treated properly. So I opened my own business to try and learn from what not to do and actually develop a really good team and a community because you're only as good as your worst player. So mm-hmm. that was my goal initially. You worked at Timberline Lodge, which is my home state of Oregon. That's yes, pretty impressive. yes. Tell me about that. Beautiful place. Beautiful mm-hmm. place. I mean, that was one of the coolest experiences ever. Uh, we, you know, I worked every single job at that place and got to know everybody very well. I lived in government camp, which is just right down the hill from 
the mountain. And I, ultimately I lived it. And then after that, I lived in a little cabin in the woods in Sandy through the summertime, which was also awesome. It was, uh, had like an, uh, an outdoor outhouse. It was a mile off the main road there. Um, and I would just hike and, and run. It was, it was the most amazing experience. Uh, but, um, that was a fun place because of really the bounty of both, you know, meats and, and seafood and like the mushrooms in the woods there. Um, you know, I mean, it's real rainforest like habitat. So the morels and the chanterelles and those fresh hand foraged mushrooms were just unbelievable. You didn't grow up on a farm, right? No, 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 no. I grew up in New Jersey, so far from a farm. Yeah. So, you you know, I know it's the garden state, but maybe not the garden for everyone. Uh, so here you are, you are choosing to go far away from your roots in order to find your new roots. And it's impressive. You were a busy guy. When did you finally get this notion that you wanted to marry your love for cuisine and cooking and um, that sort of thing into your environmentalist leanings? Well, it was always there, right? So the the environmental piece was always the undercurrent. Um, So Mm -hmm. it it drove all my decisions. If you say there's a why behind everything you do, that was part of the why. I had the opportunity to really dive into it deeply when I started a nonprofit with the Aquarium of the Pacific back in 2008, which was focused on marine stewardship, marine conservation, and sustainable seafood, but through the eyes of a chef. Most seafood is served in restaurants in the United States. So if we were going to try and change the consumer mindset in regards to purchasing better types of seafood and understanding the types of seafood that they're eating, what a better way to do it than through chefs. So I was kind of tasked with educating chefs um, or educating consumers through chefs, right? Uh, In order to try and basically, at the end of the day, get people to eat more seafood, but more of the right types of seafood. What are the right types of seafood? Uh, U.S. caught seafood, um, U.S. wild. There's there's farm seafood that's still really good, um, some of which comes out of Canada, but you want to look for certain labels, best aquaculture practice. BAP is a label that we look for. Um, and then seafood that's imported from countries that have strong, you know, a, a, an ocean-focused regulatory framework for the ways in which they, they harvest their seafood. So is there a stock management plan in place? What does the population of that particular fish stock look like? And is it being fished to maximize its its sustainable yield? So there's there's a lot of different elements related to this notion of sustainable seafood. But at the end of the day, it's really about healthier, um, higher quality seafood uh, that leaves the ocean kind of where you know in a in a good state. So I've been all over the West Coast, Mast Coast, as I call it, and I was always surprised that coming from growing up in the Pacific Northwest and seeing legit really good salmon and then going to Southern California restaurants and you know what they offer? They don't offer Southern California or I'm sorry, they don't offer PNW salmon. They offer Scottish salmon or, you know, whatever Atlantic, whatever. I was always kind of flummoxed by that. I mean, I, I guess I, I'm kind of spoiled. I really like the Pacific Northwest salmon. Yeah, no, it is wonderful. I think that, you know, I break it down. Everybody kind of looks at salmon as like a construct for one fish. But to me, Atlantic salmon, which is what you're referring to with the Scottish salmon, is a totally different species than the Pacific salmon, right? They're both salmonoids by g- genetically. But the Pacific salmon, which comprises sockeye salmon, chum salmon, pink salmon, um, and, uh, and a couple other subspecies in there, is totally different and eats differently. It's leaner than say um, an Atlantic salmon, which is commercially extinct and it's primarily farmed nowadays. So, you know, we'll feature both because I think that they plate differently and they eat differently. 
Um, and it's a matter of how you're preparing it and then what's in season. Furthermore, you know, there's a lot of issues right now with the ways in which seafood is being processed. So a ton of seafood is actually being caught in Alaska or the Pacific Northwest, and it's being shipped to China, frozen, processed, unfrozen, then frozen again and sent out. So the seafood industry is complicated from that, you know, from that perspective. And I think more education is definitely necessary. So you like to keep the origin of the food as close to the people as possible instead of shipping. Yeah. Um, What do you think of Copper River salmon? I mean, I love Copper Rivers, you know, the best. (laughs) I mean, it's become a brand in and of itself. Yeah. Delicious. We bought a whole one the other day at the, it just, it was maybe this big or something like that. Yep. And if the local store had them, we were like, by the way, we live in Nowheresville and the local store had the fish. And so we thought, okay, well, we'll buy one. Well, that meant we had to break it down and, yeah. I I um I don't, I've never broken down a fish before, and God bless the thing. It still ate good, but it looked awful after I got done with yeah. it. So, it well, the key just... the key the key if you get a whole fish is to just cut right down the center of it, so you get these big fat salmon steaks. They're mm-hmm. wrapped cuts, and then you can just kind of roast it and peel the skin off of it after it's cooked. Oh, oh. Well, um, if I ever have that experience again, I I I will do. It. So you you cut where you're not cutting down the. This, the, yeah, imagine uh, if you have the if you have a fish right in front of you, just cut steaks like right out down the center, right across perpendicular to uh, the back. My God, that makes sense. It makes more sense than what I did, which was yeah. I, I watched a YouTube video. What can I tell you? I you know what can I tell you? The beauty of YouTube, you can be an expert instantaneously. <laughs> well, not me. Um, okay, so we have. You going from places, you've had extraordinary professional experiences. And then at one point, did you say, I'm, I mean, we've sort of alighted it, you know, through it and well, I started my own restaurant, but really that wasn't the plan, was it? Were you always going to open up a chain of restaurants and, and that sort of thing? No, no. So the, the reason I went with that kind of multi-unit approach was because the foundation and the mission of Slapfish was to get people to eat more seafood by put by serving high quality seafood in a fast casual setting, right? If I could kind of break down some of the barriers to approach seafood, because always on the one end of the spectrum, you have like fine dining, white tablecloth seafood, and then on the other end of the spectrum, you have greasy fried things. And I wanted to establish an option right in that middle that was both approachable and affordable, but also high quality. So the 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 desire was to scale and to scale quickly. Yeah, it, one time I think I told you this on Twitter, and you might recall it. But I know you talked to a lot of people, but I was uh, in Laguna Beach, and you had slapfish there, and uh, this is before COVID, and it was hilarious because you know I dealt a lot with homeless people, and you know just as a person, that's how we what we did at our church that we just talked to homeless people a lot, and so I saw this crackhead, and uh, she was a homeless person, and. <laughs> I said, she goes, I'm really hungry. Can, you know, can I, can I get some food? And I go, Absolutely. I'll buy you lunch right now. And um, so she, I go, where, do you, where, where should we go? And I started going over somewhere else and, that. you know, sort of that direction. She, you know, I want slapfish. <laughs> <laughs> where, 
Excellent. And I'm thinking, I've had some very interesting experiences with homeless people in Laguna Beach, let me tell you. They know, they know quality. <laughs> I, I couldn't believe it. I thought, uh, you know, I can't, you know, I'm buying you this. I can't afford to buy that for myself right now because I have, you know, only $25. But uh, it was hilarious. The other person that I dealt with was a woman. Uh, she's right outside Whole Foods. And um, I said, hey, how you doing today? And she goes, <laughs> And uh, she goes, I'm really hungry and stuff like that. And and I go, well, I'll just go and get you a sandwich at uh, Whole Foods and I'll bring one out to you. How about that? She goes, well, I actually like their soups. And then when I got in there, I go, well, why don't you, I, I, okay, I'll get you the veg- vegetable soup. She goes, well, I'm a vegetarian, but I'm a vegan. And so it has to be the particular, and on, I'm not kidding. I mean, it took forever to get this woman what she, she needed. I mean, the pickiest damn homeless people you've ever seen your life or in, in but I, I mean i i did it i mean i was it was fine whatever good for you good for you I mean, well she might be homeless because she was trying to traverse the vegan supply chain and that led her to her homelessness um would you tell me what that's all about i mean honest to goodness well i mean if you're vegan right you have you have a limited amount of options for what types of food to eat uh get proteins the full chain amino acids and you know uh, my vegetarian niece has decided that she's going back to meat because it's not good for her not to eat meat. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people realize that quickly. Mm-hmm. So you've got these experiences. You are a chef by trade um, and and by education. And then comes COVID. And, and what happened? Well, I mean, it was just, you know, pandemonium and destruction in the restaurant industry. But I think that everybody understands that piece of it. But what they don't understand this is that when things were shut down, Restaurants still had bills to pay, right? Like we're a cash flow business. We rely on a day's worth of cash sales to pay yesterday's bills. That's pretty much how it works in any retail environment. But the difference is with retail is you don't, it, traditional retail doesn't have a perishable inventory. So they can sit on their inventory and, you know, turn through their inventory over time. We've got perishable inventory. So not only do we risk losing all the inventory that's on the shelves, which can make up for, you know, a week, a week and a half's worth of sales, but also, you know, we've got the vendors to pay, the landlords to pay, all the necessary vendors and, and you know, those suppliers that keep our business afloat. They weren't pressing pause on anything, right? Like they were, it was, it was business as usual. So tough time. Uh, yeah, uh, really, really tough time. And uh, th- this got you noticed because you had a fairly popular Twitter uh presence, but you just went after Gavin Newsom and something happened. Um, What happened? Well, I mean, it was just the hypocrisy, right? It wasn't just Gavin Newsom, but he was obviously at the head of it. Uh, You know, everybody's edicts coming down and all these rules and all of these restrictions that nobody followed who establishes the rules or restrictions. And it was just over and over and over again. And obviously with the whole French laundry, laundry fiasco where he banned outdoor dining and he banned indoor dining and he banned outdoor dining and he banned dining without a mask, right? Forcing you to eat between, or put a mask on in between bites. And then he's pictured. And the thing is he, before the pictures were released of him doing that, somebody had brought it up at a press conference and he lied about it. He lied to everybody. And he said, no, 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 we were eating outdoors. Um, Nobody was near each other. We were socially distanced. And then the pictures came out and they were eating indoors and they were all sitting on top of one another and they weren't wearing masks. So it was just a lie. I mean, it was just a flat out lie to everybody's face. Even after he attempted to apologize in quotes, the apology itself was a lie. And and then he went to Cabo. Yeah, of course. And who knows where else? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, uh, 
so that got you some, you got in trouble for that. Didn't you get a little visit from the tax man? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I got, you know, I, then the, you know, kind of the, 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 all of the agencies in the state of California just coincidentally happened to start coming after me for various reasons related to my business, all of which turned up nothing, but still cost us a significant sum of money to try and fight and battle. Of course. Of course. Yeah. You're just made of money. Um, of course. You have four kids. You have a wife. When did you have time to do all that as this hard-charging person that you are? Where'd you meet your wife, for example? In the industry. Uh, so she worked with me. She went to culinary school. She, you know, I met her a couple years after I had opened Slapfish, and then she jumped right in and started running everything with me. And so she must have some thoughts on the idea of wood, wood stoves being outlawed and wood, uh, uh, wood-fired pizza ovens being uh, attacked uh, in New York City uh, and the fact that people say that the natural gas industry is not a clean one and, and all sorts of things. I mean, are, are you just tired of this crap? I mean, in, in California, you could very well have to adhere to some of the really dumb rules by these so-called experts. Yeah, and we already are. But I think that at the end of the day, what frustrates me the most is somebody who actually does the research and understands the effect that many of these things have on the environment is how backwards they are. I mean, we have decreased our emissions in the United States, you know, our CO2 emissions over the past decade so significantly. We have done done so by converting coal to natural gas, and now they want to get rid of natural gas. People also don't recognize is that the lion's share, the majority of all the electricity that's produced is driven by coal and natural gas. So if we remove natural gas from the equation, or I'm sorry, if we actually electrify everything and and then in order to removing natural gas direct from the source, and then we have to produce all of that electricity, well, guess what's driving it? Coal and natural gas. So we're actually doing it in a less efficient manner, which is theoretically going to create more of an output of this carbon and all these particulates that they're concerned about. And so by their very metrics, it's worse for the environment, whatever they're suggesting. So when I bring up these very basic facts that can't be disputed, then, you know, the the goalposts change. Now it's a health hazard, right? It becomes a health hazard. Um, and that's what we're going to see, I think, over the next years. I, I, I already have started to see some of the studies come out of places like Stanford University where they're funding to come up with reasons why it's a personal health hazard, right? It's no longer environmental. And then they'll loop the environment back into it. So it's always changing. It's a way to scare people and it's a scare tactic, but it hurts the small business owners. It hurts the independent citizen because all the things they know and they love and the things they take comfort in, food, fire, right, pizza, um, are getting removed. And uh, it's just another way in which they can kind of control the populace. And it's another thing, too. So you talk about uh, finding comfort in fire, uh, lack of forest management, and uh, blaming all the forest fires and wildfires on the climate change, when in fact it's forest management. And, and it, in addition, it's other things that they do as well. And well, then when then, what and arsonists, a bunch of yeah. crazy whack jobs out there. Sure. And the other thing is, is that, you know, when you have a big old forest fire and all of a sudden Oregon's decided they've, you know, well, we're not really going to fight fires anymore. And we're not going to allow any logging on certain federal lands anymore. And we're so sorry. But, and then, of course, you have this huge uh, acres upon acres of fuel that are not allowed to be salvaged, uh, uh, logged and all that stuff. So you've got fuel on fuel. And then when... Their fires inevitably come caused by your crazy arsonist or lightning, which is most of them. Then what happens? It emits all of the CO2, which is which resides inside a tree. Because forests are 
CO2 sinks. That's where that CO2 sticks around until you release it. These are the dumb things environmentalists do. I just swear, I don't think they really believe what they're saying. Well, it's become an industry, right? So like, you know, the environment and the fear that is being produced around the environment or environmental catastrophe in and of itself is a moneymaker. And I think that the intentions in many cases were were good from the start, but when they grow to become massive corporations, you know, under the pseudonym of a nonprofit, then we run into the same issues that we run into with any large corporation, right? That diffusion of responsibility, the need for money, the lobbying, the connection with the government, and then and then it's you know there's cronyism involved, and you start to see public policy chasing the dollars as opposed to just policy in a vacuum. You really have thought this through. I mean, the NGOs alone getting grants from the government and those grant requests have to have certain keywords in them and they have to be going in one direction and one political direction only. And all of a sudden you have this, this, uh, you know, this corpus of, of uh, science, science saying, you know, all of the same things that the government really wanted you to say in the first place. So what good are you actually, Mr. Expert? You know, it's just, it's pretty ridiculous. And uh, so what, as we sort of wind down a little bit, because I know you're really, you're busy, you're busy fella. Um, What's your favorite food television show? Doesn't have to be on the Food Network. Diners, drive-ins and dives. I mean, really, hands down. I just love looking at, I love seeing those small businesses, those original kind of, you know, chop shops, those diners and traveling across America. I like Guy Fieri too. And uh, I think that features really good food. So that's just a fun, entertaining show to watch for me and the kids. I did not expect that answer. I thought it would be Chef's Table. Have you no. ever seen that on Netflix? Or I, you, so? know, you know, it's funny. I, I, I appreciate a lot of those shows. I don't watch them. You know, I, I live this world, right? In, I live this industry day in and day out. People ask me about the bear, you name it. You know, it's like, I, I just can't come home after 14 hours and watch you know, a Hollywood produced show that is my life. Like, it's just, it's not that I don't appreciate it and I don't like it. And if I wasn't in the industry, I would probably watch it. It's just, I can't do it. Do you use on a general basis the uh, techniques that you use, the French techniques uh, that you learn in culinary school in your in your restaurant most? Yeah, yeah, I, I use a lot of them. Um, but, you know, let's take, for example, like we're not rolling stock pots 24 hours a day doing veal broth and, you know, traditional demi-gloss, but we'll use the foundations of those flavor to make quick pan sauces and to still utilize a lot of those old French techniques to build layers of flavor in the sauces. You always have to have a foundation, right? Like in the absence of a foundation, you've just got branches on a tree and those are as good as, you know, kindling or firewood. We always want to have that foundation in our flavors and our sauces and the way in which we cook. Uh, But sometimes, especially in a you know, a, a quick casual, well, we're a, we'll, we're a full service restaurant, but you got to produce those flavors very quickly and instantaneously. So there's ways to kind of hack your way around it, but still use the same technique. Mm-hmm. Uh, I understand that um, reverse searing is a thing for you. Would you explain to people what that is? I mean, Kurt Schlichter is the one who first introduced it to me. And then all of a sudden, everybody's talking about it on Twitter. And I uh, just, what kind of meat do you start with first? Traditionally, people used to think about searing meat to seal in the juices and then the slow roasted. But when you're actually searing meat, you're bringing it up to such a high heat that you're drying the exterior of the meat out to get that sear. And you're quickly bringing the internal temperature up as high as you can before then it slow roasts. Well, 
when meat sits at that low temperature, the longer it sits below like 115 degrees, there's enzymes that exist in the meat that slowly break down and tenderize the meat in that zone, that window between like 80 and 120 degrees. You want to keep it at that temperature for as long and slow as you possibly can. So it just kind of marinates and it tenderizes and it's a slower process. And then you sear it at the end. And the reason why the sear at the end is also important is because now a lot of that meat has dried out on the exterior. So when you do sear it, it's a much quicker sear and you get a quicker brown on the exterior. So you get that deep, rich flavor without having to go too far and too deep into the meat. A lot of that moisture has already evaporated. Nothing can brown in the presence of steam. So let it kind of evaporate to begin with and then get a nice high sear at the end. Nothing can brown in the in the presence of steam. So true. How many times have I forgotten that? <laughs> yeah. Well. <laughs> well, thank you, Chef. I appreciate it. America Chef. Andrew Thanks Gruel. for having me. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Appreciate everything you do, as a matter of fact. You're an inspiration. And and you're an inspiration not only in your drive, but also in your uh, family life in that you've decided that you're going to uh, vote for the future and give birth to four kids. Well, you didn't. Your wife did. But she you did. know what I mean? The good people should be having kids. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, look, you know, we, we'd have more if it was logistically possible and we had the space for them. <laughs> <laughs> well, good for you. Maybe you can do that. Much, much success to you. Thank you so Thank much. You. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Adult in the Room podcast. To keep the programs you like to listen to, please rate this podcast with a fantastic five stars on your Apple podcast app every time you listen and give me a great review. Plus, of course, subscribe to the podcast. It makes a difference with the big tech algorithm and the big tech oligarchs, and it makes us easier to find. Please get in touch with me on all the big tech stuff. Yeah, we're still there. Using the names Victoria Taft or the Adult in the Room podcast on MeWe, Parlor, Minds, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks to 1A Cast for imaging, editing, and production. The fantastic song is Gospel by the March 4th Band of Portland, Oregon. Music for Antifa versus Mike Strickland is Ride or Die by Raps by RC. The Adult in the Room podcast is also a production of Flamingo Road Studios. Remember, head up, heart out, and strive to be the adult in the room. Till next time, mischief managed. <laughs>